we're beginning a new series, and it's kind of back to school time. And uh, I don't know what back to school time was kind of like in your house. In our house, the idea that school had uh, was just starting was always kind of met with kind of groans and blah, back to school, right? Um, Isaac is more of a hands-on, kind of roam in the woods, kind of a free spirit, lateral thinker. If you know Isaac, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, so school for him has always been a chore. It's something necessary, but something that he disliked. And maybe in your house it's different. Maybe back to school time you get cheers. Maybe you get, you know, yay, school. And everybody's happy to go back. And the idea for school for your kids is maybe something that fills them with joy. And they love going back to school. I'm not sure how it is in your house. But wouldn't it be great if there was some method of moving our children from the first category into the second? If there was some way of creating in our children a passion for something that we know is good for them, but they just don't love. That would be great if we could just find a way to do that. I wish I could have found the way to do that for Isaac so that he could cheer, yay, school, and not groan, back to school. Well, we're starting this series, and this series that I'm starting, I'm expecting to get one of those two responses from you as well. And I hope that some of you are in the second category, yay. But I really expect that most of you are in the first category because I think and I hope that there is a way that we can shift from the blah to the yay category. I hope there's a principle that you can adjust your outlook on that changes your mind so that your first response won't be, oh, but it'll be yay. So here it is. We're starting a five to six week series on discipleship. Oh, I got a yay. (laughs) I set you up for that. But I know that I heard some of the groans already, right? Just by, you can't deny it. Just by saying the word discipleship, there's spiritual groans, right? Because even though we know that we should like the idea of discipleship, it just always seems so hard to do discipling and to do discipleship in our own life. Discipleship sounds to us like some kind of next-level Christian living. It sounds like a bar that once we've cleared that discipleship bar, it just seems to get moved higher, right? You get through grade 7 and you think, I've learned everything there is to know, why would I need to go back for grade 8 and then 9 and 10 and on and on, right? And so you think you've cleared a bar, but then it gets moved higher, It sounds like discipleship, we think in our spiritual life, it sounds like this endless race, that we can run this race of discipleship for a while. We start a program, we're doing well, we run the race of discipleship, but eventually we just have to slow down and walk again out of exhaustion. Or maybe just lay down. Or maybe go home and order a pizza. Because it's too much to just keep on the race of discipleship, right? And this is a common problem with discipleship. It just seems so hard to maintain. And so when I was considering this series over the summer, as you can imagine, I was thinking about this idea of of discipleship, and I looked at a bunch of discipleship plans. Okay, As you can imagine, there are lots of videos, and there are lots of books and charts out there and schedules and plans that a church can choose from to get your discipleship engine revved up. And so as a good pastor, I was thinking I have to lead my congregation through this series on discipleship. I need to get some of these materials and start this race. It's the new school year, and it's back to school. It's trying hard again. So I was looking at some things. Now listen to this list of lists, which is, I am serious here, is just the feature list of the bullet points that are part of each section of one discipleship series that I looked at. The four ways to know what a true disciple looks like. 
the three greatest barriers to discipleship. The right tools, it doesn't say how many, to start and sustain effective discipleship relationships. The real heart of effective disciple making. A deep dive, serious, into seven habits of highly effective disciple makers. The eight non-negotiable components of effective disciple making. Fourteen practical tips for effective disciple making. Seven key insights that will give you the tools and motivation to keep disciple making central in your life. Nine hidden barriers to effective disciple making and what to do about them. A three-part series that uncovers what true discipleship looks like. The three simple patterns and practices that effective disciple makers use every day, the tips, again, doesn't tell us how many, that effective disciple makers use to share their faith in culturally relevant ways, the three things you absolutely must balance to be an effective disciple maker, eight habits of highly effective disciple making communities, six marks of transformed disciple, and top seven things that will help you endure, they just had to use the word endure there, (laughs) in effective disciple making, and more. Okay, like, I'm serious, that was one course. That was one study on disciple making. And I get it. I know that they mean well. I get the fact that discipleship is a broad topic, so there's lots to say about it. I get where they're going, but seriously, right? Is this supposed to encourage people? What sadist reads that list and says, sign me up, (laughs) right? That's what I want to do for the next 12 weeks of my life or the rest of my life. Like my top one thing that will help me endure discipleship is laying that material down and backing slowly away from it. I did the math on this. Just from that list of lists, there are 77 things to learn and remember in order apparently to be a good disciple maker or to be a good disciple in their system. We're not going to do that discipleship program, okay? There, I've already moved you into the yay category. (laughs) We're backing away from that. Instead, what I want to do, and this is, this is where this whole sort of thing took me, is I want to look at discipleship a little bit differently maybe than the church or than the, maybe the North American church or the programmatically driven church has looked at discipleship in the past or looks at currently. One thing for sure we're going to do is we're going to approach discipleship biblically, and another thing that we're going to do is approach discipleship simply. So we are going to begin this series on discipleship, but I want it to be very biblical, as I'm sure all of these are, but I also want them to be very simple because for me, discipleship has to be something that we can do every single day. It has to be something that we can sustain. It can't just be a 77-point marathon that we plow through and you know, or sort of fall off the wagon at the end. I can't remember 77 things. I can't track habits and patterns and barriers and tips. I need one simple approach for me. And so what I want to do is I want to take one verse this morning, and I want to take that verse and I want to set it at the heart of our approach and hopefully your approach to disciple-making and discipleship for the weeks to come and and maybe for the rest of your life, I hope. All disciple-making, this verse fits to. All disciple-making, from the very first day of hearing the gospel or sharing the gospel until the very last day of someone's life, I believe this verse tells us about discipleship. And here's our verse, and then we're going to unpack what it means. And this is the same verse, and so you can use the top of your sheet there. Matthew 13:44. This is Jesus speaking, teaching in a series of parables in this chapter. And one of the parables that he reserves, after speaking many parables to the crowds, it says he came apart from the crowds and he went into the house with the disciples. And this is one of the parables that he spoke to his disciples. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field 
which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And you might have it in the NIV because I used a different version in the first sermon. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's our verse for discipleship. Now, first of all, we have to understand that parables, as Jesus spoke them, are like metaphors. They're meant to convey one clear idea. They are not intended to be right or true or to teach you a whole bunch of different things in a whole bunch of different ways. When the Bible, for instance, says that we are like God's sheep, okay, when the Bible says that as a metaphor or uses it as a parable, it doesn't mean that God intends to shear us and make Hudson Bay blankets out of us. Okay, It doesn't mean that he intends to eat us with mint jelly. You can take the metaphor of sheep too far, and you can do that with parables too. So you have to understand that when Jesus is teaching in a parable, it is not appropriate to pick it apart or belabor the parable's meaning too much. And so when you first read this, there's no reason here for us to get into debating the ethics of the man's business practices where he is secretly hiding a treasure that he found and not telling the owner about it and then going off and buying the property that's full of hidden gold, okay? Jesus is not giving us a parable on real estate ethics, okay? So just don't let that distract you. It's also not a parable about the method of acquiring the kingdom of heaven. This is not a parable to teach us that the kingdom of heaven is somehow for sale and that we have to somehow buy the kingdom of heaven. We know that the parable and what Jesus is teaching is not about that because Jesus and scripture has already told us many, many, many times that heaven is not able to be purchased. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 5.3. He says, truly I say unto you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Kids can't buy anything. You know, you received without pain, and so give without pay, he says in Matthew 10. It says, it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom in Luke 12. So don't get distracted that this parable is somehow about purchasing heaven. It's not about that either. What the parable does say directly is that it is about the kingdom of heaven, and of course it is. That's clearly important. What I want you to see also is that the parable is also about the man who finds the treasure and his response to that treasure. And most important to us today is that the parable is about the man's motivation over the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. This parable illuminates this truth. Jesus spoke this in order to illuminate this reality. The kingdom of God is so valuable that losing everything we have on earth but getting the kingdom is a happy exchange. It's a good deal. That's what this parable is about. And I cannot think of a simpler description of discipleship than this. Because in this parable, in one sentence, Jesus has encapsulated for us the very nature of discipleship. It contains the simple truths and it points us towards radical implications of those truths that summarize the essence of a person's first encounter with God and then their response to that encounter. And isn't that the Christian life? Isn't the Christian life a life of our first encounter with God and then the rest of our life, our response to that encounter? And that, in one sentence, is what Jesus has taught us here in this parable. It is about encountering God and then responding to that encounter. And the good news for today, and we're going to unpack further implications about this next week, because I got this whole other sermon I still got to preach. <laughs> but, but we're going to unpack more from this. The good news for us today is that both the response of the man and his encounter 
his response and his motivations for acting afterwards is not a motivation of guilt. It is not out of shame. It is not even out of grit and self-determination and memorizing 77 points of healthy discipleship. The, the reaction and the motivation of the man in this encounter with God is joy. It's joy. And so, when we go forward in discipleship, this is why this is going to be the center of our discipleship program. This is your one tip. That discipleship is about pursuing joy in treasuring Christ, in treasuring the kingdom of heaven. That's it. That's the whole Christian life. God intends for you to respond to him from joy, to pursue joy, out of joy, because of the value of Jesus Christ. And so those two words in this parable hold out hope for us in our discipleship plan. They hold out hope for me, because I couldn't do that. I couldn't do 77 things. I could not keep my that's all that stuff on the chart in front of my wall or on my bedroom wall or something so that I woke up, I would see all these different things and do all that discipleship stuff. But this I can do. Jesus can give me one sentence that just says, the kingdom of heaven is so valuable that losing everything you had on earth, you would do joyfully in order to exchange for the kingdom of heaven. And so the man, we are told in this parable, found a treasure in a field and he hid it again. And then from joy, or in his joy... Over the treasure, the man is able to sell everything that he owns and he's able to leave his old things and exchange them for the kingdom and live in a new place, all in a state of joy. So why is he able to do that? Well, the first thing is the nature of the treasure. Now, I think it's about this time of year that the big charity hospital sweepstakes are starting. I don't know if you get them in Guelph. We used to get these big color pamphlets in the mail all the time. I don't get them up here, thankfully, because I never did them, but aren't I a bad person? I never supported those, uh, what is it, the Princess Margaret children's hospital or something like that that's the one i always remember and the cover of these brochures they always have like a big pile of money and there's like a ferrari and there's like a big weber grill you know that you can win and and there's cash for life and all of those different things and and there's these pictures on the brochure and there's jewelry and all of that stuff and and I think sometimes I've actually literally seen a treasure chest with gold and jewels heaped up in it on the cover but the whole point of those sweepstakes brochures are to entice you by the sheer size of the winnings. right? You look at that front cover and you flip through all the stuff you can win if you just send in your $100 and, and you think that you can just get all of that stuff and it fills your head with this glorious idea of the possibility of hitting the jackpot and winning the millions of dollars that the grand prize is in that sweepstakes. And that's pretty cool because our flesh really responds to that. Of, of winning the huge multi-million dollar prize, right? We can just, we get thrills just thinking about that and we get goosebumps. Think of what you could do with it. You could pay off your debt. You could pay off your parents' debt as children should do if they have the opportunity to. <laughs> or if you're parents, you could ch- pay off your children's debt, which as parents, you should never pay off your children's debt. Okay, that's a different sermon, but it's true. Children pay off your parents' debt. Parents do not pay off your children's debt. But you could help them get through school or you could pay for better medical care for your families or you could start a trust that pays for medical work in developing countries. You know, with a prize, with wealth, with treasure like that, there's so many things that you could do that would fill you with joy and fill others with joy. In this parable, in fact, the whole scripture tells us that that prize... That Princess Margaret sweepstakes, million dollars for life or million dollars every year for life, all of that stuff is garbage. 
All of the joy that, that, that our flesh reacts with, of thinking of having all that money and doing all that good, this parable says that's garbage. The treasure buried in this field is not cheap gold and stupid diamonds. The treasure the man finds in the field is the very kingdom of heaven. And he discovers eternal life. He discovers a relationship with the creator of this universe. Or think of it this way. If we were to imagine that the distance between the earth and the sun was the thickness of a piece of paper, then that means the width of our galaxy would be a stack of paper over 300 miles tall. And this galaxy is just one of millions of galaxies separated by distances that are themselves on a scale tens of thousands of times greater than the distances inside our galaxies. And Jesus created all of that universe. And for all of that universe, it was created for him. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, the visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And this man who's walking through this field, he, he finds in the field the means by which he can acquire for himself the kingdom of God, the kingdom of this creator of the universe. And so that's got to be something really good. And so the Princess Margaret Sweetsakes or the Lotto 649 or the Power Max or whatever it is that gives us goops bumps and we think how much joy would be in our life if we had all those millions of dollars, this man finds in this field the kingdom of heaven. And our, the scale of our sense of value has to just completely change and obliterate is worth far more than however many millions you can accumulate on this worth, on this earth. It is the way, the treasure in the field is the way to inherit the kingdom of God. It's the way to reclaim a relationship with God, to find our way back to God. And the treasure, the finding our way back to God, we know who that is. It's Jesus. This treasure is Jesus Christ, who's come to die for our sins, to reconcile us with God, to, to bring us back into fellowship with God. And to eventually inherit eternal life. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And this is what the man has found. Okay, Understand this parable. This is what this man has found. Nothing is more valuable and nothing contains more joy, way more joy, than you'll get in the Princess Margaret sweepstakes. The nature of this treasure is pure joy. It's God's kingdom. It's a kingdom of joy. And God has talked about this all through his word. In 1 Chronicles 16.31, says, Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, and let them say among the nations, The Lord reigns, the joy in the sovereignty of the reign of King God. You know, or in Psalm 37.4, says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And from just two weeks ago, the final verse that we looked at in Psalm 16, and, and that was deliberate because we looked at Psalm 16, which was the qualities or the character of a man who continues to pursue after God, King David. And what does King David finish that psalm with after listing all the things about himself that, that sort of marked him as a disciple, as a follower of God? He said in the last verse, You make known to me the path of life. In your present there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the treasure that the man has found hidden in this field, the kingdom of God, presence with God in heaven for eternity. That's the value of what he found, Jesus said. And this is our treasure, disciples. This is what is offered, pure joy. So how else can he respond? The first thing we learn is the value. He responds from joy just because of the utter value of the treasure that he found. He cannot believe the treasure that he has at his disposal. And so he is filled with joy. But what else can cause this man's joy? Why does he respond in his joy? Why does he respond from joy? Well, the treasure might be one that fills us with potential joy or anticipated joy, but it's only real joy if we can actually get it. 
Right? The man responds with joy because he knows what an amazing deal this find is. He has discovered something incredible. He has discovered this amazing wealth, this amazing thing, and he's giddy with happiness because he knows that he can afford it. All he has to do is go and sell everything that he has, and he can have this treasure. And so he's filled with joy. He's saying, I've got enough for this. Right? Have you ever made one of those amazing sort of garage sale or thrift store finds, right? Where you walked away knowing that you just stole the best deal, right? That was what the whole premise of the antique roadshow was, right? Do you remember watching the antique roadshow? That was the whole premise of the show was to see what guy got a Rembrandt for like 30 bucks at a garage sale, right? To figure out how much of a steal these people made. And the joy that we have in something is comparable to what we are able to get it for versus what it is actually worth. And this is sort of like that, but a little bit different too. The joy of this treasure is not that it's a treasure that you happen to get for 20 bucks, but the joy is that the price is within reach and it is worth much, much, much more than whatever you have to pay. And so this man has to pay everything he has, everything that he owns, but the kingdom of heaven doesn't cost him any more than he's able to pay. And so he's filled with joy because he has found this treasure and he's able to pay for it. And it's interesting in this parable about treasure and value, which where treasure and value and worth is of, of such importance to the parable, Jesus never says if the man is rich or poor or whether he's middle class. He's just a man. He's just a regular guy. And so that's on purpose because in a parable we can insert ourselves in the story for him. And so even as I described that and I said the man found a treasure and he was able to purchase it, he could afford it, because all he had to do was sell everything that he had, immediately in your mind, consciously or subconsciously, you're thinking, what would that be if I did that? What would it mean for me to sell everything I had in order to acquire something? But that's on purpose, because the kingdom of heaven, the treasure, the kingdom of heaven costs the same amount for all of us. It costs exactly everything that we have. It never costs us more than we have, and it doesn't cost less. So if you're sitting here today, you have what you need, to acquire the kingdom of heaven. And I'm not talking about worldly goods, because this is a parable. You don't buy the, the kingdom of heaven. But the truth is the same. The man is filled with joy because he realizes he has what he needs in order to acquire the treasure. And as disciples and potential disciples of Jesus, the joy for us is, is that you must realize what Jesus is teaching here is that you are the man and you have what it takes to acquire the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. You don't have any less or any more than exactly what you need to acquire it. And so this man in our parable, he's able to go with joy or in joy or from joy because he realizes this is a treasure of infinite value. It's a thousand Rembrandts. It's 10,000 Rembrandts. It's a million Rembrandts. But it's a treasure that he can still afford. It's a treasure, and when it's a treasure that you can afford, you joyfully pay for it. But it's most joyful at all because at the end of it all, the price that he pays is not a burden. When Jesus says that the treasure cost everything that the man had, you might start to think there'd be a little twinge of despair, right? So he finds this treasure in a field, and then he realizes this is going to cost me everything I have. And you might think there might be a little shadow of a doubt, or maybe there's some weighing of the options, or maybe there's some internal debate in the man's heart. You know, should I sell everything? Should I, should I turn, off, turn away everything that I have? It seems expensive. All that I own? The Greek word that the that Jesus uses here, the Greek word for all in this sentence, when it talks about all that he owns, is the Greek word pass. 
And it's used without any preceding article, which means there's no restraining category to the word pass. And so the Greek word for all used in this way, it means, I get ready for this, it means all. Okay? So it says he sells all that he had, it means all that he had. He sold it all. It means everything, in every kind, in every variety, without any category excluded. Right? But the man is able to sell all that he has joyfully because the price is not a burden. Now, the Apostle Paul, if you were to go on and read through the New Testament and read the epistles and the letters of the Apostle Paul through all his letters and all his teaching to his fellow Christians, he teaches on the value of Jesus and the smallness of our sacrifice. But it's in Philippians 3 that I think Paul personalizes this parable for himself in the most direct way. And you may remember that in Philippians chapter 3, he spends several verses describing the great status that the Apostle Paul had as a uh, person in Israel. He talked about the tribe that he came from. He talked about his heritage. He talked about his education. He talked about his righteousness. He talked about his service at the temple. He talked about his reputation among the leaders of the Pharisees and the scribes. All of that stuff. But he finishes off that paragraph as he's describing all of his value as a Pharisee, as an Israelite, as a Jew. And he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. This is the Apostle Paul. This is a disciple of Jesus explaining personally how this parable relates to him. He says, I get it. Christ is the treasure. And everything that I had is garbage in payment for receiving Christ. I would gladly go with joy and sell everything I have in my life in order to receive Christ in the kingdom of God. Paul lives this as a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is the heart of discipleship. This parable spells out for us exactly what it means to be a disciple. So no matter what the man's perceived wealth was, it doesn't matter what he had to give up in exchange for the kingdom for knowing Jesus. It says he could do so from joy because it wasn't a burden. It wasn't suffering of any kind to pay it. No matter if this man was rich or poor, or you can imagine whoever he was, that in selling all that he had, there must have been some pretty special things. Right? You can think of all your possessions. You can think of all the things that you have in your life, not just possessions, but relationships or affections or whatever. There are things that were precious to him. There were things that were meaningful to him. There were things that he cherished. And as great as that treasure was to him, we can't let the price of it land too lightly on us either. That he was willing to pay all of that. The price that he had to pay was everything that the man had. And yet this man was willing to sell it all with joy. And not joy later on. It's not like he went away grumpy and grudgingly and sold everything. And then later on the joy accumulated. He immediately realized the value of the kingdom of God. And he was immediately able with joy to sell and give up all that he had in exchange for the kingdom. Or for that treasure. It's not sacrifice. It's not a burden to give it up. And so it's a joyful exchange because you're not really giving up anything when you give up the things of this world for the kingdom of heaven. And later on in Matthew 19, Jesus is teaching again about holding lightly to the wealth of this world and the Apostle Peter finally can't stand it anymore as Jesus is doing all this teaching of parables in Matthew 19 and, and talking about what we give up and what we sacrifice to be disciples and how the things of this world you know, can be eaten by moth and rust and the things in heaven last forever. And, and Peter finally can't stand it anymore and he interrupts Jesus as he's teaching and he says, look, Jesus, 
In Matthew 19, he says, look, Jesus, we disciples, we've left everything to follow you. What do we get? And Peter's like, we gave it all up. You know, what do we get? And Jesus, I can imagine, just smiled at him. And he says, you're going to sit by me on thrones. And whatever you have given up in this life, you're going to return to you a hundredfold. And on top of that, eternal life. Right? In other words, Jesus turns to Peter and says, come on, Peter. Cry me a river. Right? Don't, don't talk to me about how much you have given up. You are not getting the short end of this deal, Peter. You gave up fishnets and a leaky boat. I am going to bear the punishment of your sin in my spirit and die on a cross so that you can rule with me in heaven for eternity. What is it that you gave up, Peter? And this is the story of this parable. This is what Jesus is teaching in one sentence. And because of those two words, from joy, in his joy, the man could go and sell everything. It's a joyful exchange. And there's lots of other implications of this parable, and we're going to unpack those implications in the weeks to come. But the one thing that has to be clear that Jesus is telling his, us is that discipleship, putting everything that we have that is precious, everything that we have that is meaningful to us, everything that we have affection for, we take that and we are willing to exchange it for our affection and our love and our treasuring of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. And it's a joyful exchange. And so my message this morning is that discipleship is about one thing. It's about cultivating and nurturing a treasuring of Jesus Christ. It's about increasing in our mind and in our hearts and in our life an appreciation of the value of the kingdom of God, all of God's wisdom, all of God's love, all of God's grace, all of God's mercy, everything that Jesus has done for us. That is to be treasured and cherished and adored and have an affection for that supersedes our affection for everything else in our life. We can say like this man, we would gladly, in joy, give up everything else in our life in order to acquire that treasure that is Jesus Christ. That's discipleship. And the good news is, it's not a grind. It's not done out of a motivation of guilt. It's not done out of shame. It's not done because, oh, we think we have to, or it's some kind of burden. And it's not done because God charges so much to follow him, and it costs so much. It's done because it's joyful. And if it's not joyful, then you're not doing discipleship right. Because God desires our joy in him and discipleship. To lose everything but to gain the kingdom is a joyful exchange. It's a happy trade-off. And so that's going to be the root of our discipleship. Whatever we learn, whatever we do together as a family going forward, it's going to be based on this one verse. You can stick this on your fridge. This is discipleship for the rest of your life. Treasure Christ above every other treasure. And anything that you have to pay in the cost of discipleship, you will pay with joy because of how valuable Christ is. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this parable. I'm astounded. I'm overwhelmed. The one sentence from your son can teach so much that two words rescue us from the drudgery of thinking that we have to pay something or it costs something or we do something to earn your favor. 
when in fact you've set it all up so that it's our joy to receive the amazing treasure of the kingdom of God and ultimately of Christ. And so, Father, set that at the center of our discipleship in the weeks to come. Set that at the center of our life so that we, like David and like Paul, can say that at your hand are pleasures forevermore, that we would give up everything and count it as rubbish to receive Jesus Christ. I'm convinced, Father, that's the beating heart of discipleship. Joy in cherishing you. Joy in having our greatest affection set on you. And making every other affection that we have infinitely less compared to how we cherish you and treasure you. So, Father, put that in our hearts today. and Keep it there as a center the center of our solar system, the sun that we revolve around, the ballast in the keel of our boat that keeps us steady, the star that we set our course on is the infathomable value of your kingdom in Christ Jesus and the joy that we have to pursue it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.